We are speaking with Rupert Darwal, who was an investment banker and special advisor to the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the UK Treasury. He is a policy analyst, the author of The Age of Global Warming, and his latest book is Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Darwal. It's my pleasure. Now, I once taught environmental politics at University in Mexico, and the course syllabus I had created traced some of the same history that you outline in your book. What I discovered about climate change was that, in reality, it first began as a political agenda and not a scientific problem. It wasn't as if scientists said, hey, look, we have a problem and we have data to support our theory of the problem. I find that it was a political agenda that sought to fix facts to support policy and in many cases, data was fabricated. You know, we had Michael Mann with the hockey stick uh, graph that cannot be replicated. Um, East Anglia University's email scandal uh, and the acid rain scare that you talk about uh, that was meant to target the coal industry. It seems the science has become twisted. Could you tell us about this politicization and weaponization of climate change and environmentalism for political uh, agenda? Sure. I think you've, you have absolutely put your finger on it in that scientists knew there was a problem. Their theory said there'll be a problem. So they then searched for evidence to, to demonstrate that that was the case. And in, actually, this is the second book I've written. The first one was um, the, called The Age of Global Warming. And in the last chapter, I contrast global warming with... Um, cigarette smoking and lung cancer, because often you get people like Al Gore say, well, it's like lung cancer smoking causing lung cancer. In fact, it's not. And the history of this is really interesting. So in that book, I looked at what happened in, in Britain, because there was an epidemic of lung cancer through the 20th century. The big communicable um, diseases fell away like typhus and cholera and, and TB and so forth through the, through the 19th century. And then lung cancer began to take off and no one knew why. And after the Second World War, the government asked some researchers, why is this happening? So they, they devised a series of questions. They looked through the records of people who uh, had lung cancer and they, they devised a, a questionnaire. And interestingly, the two researchers who embarked on that, when they started off, they were both smokers. They didn't have a predetermined uh, idea of what they would find at all. Now, with, with global warming, as you, as you rightly say, what we had was scientists who had a theory and then went to set out to prove it. Now, the interesting point about that is the link with the politicization. Why did this scientific notion become deeply politicized? And in my second book, Green Tyranny, I trace that back to Sweden and the Swedish Social Democrats of the late 1960s, early 1970s. And they had they wanted to build a huge number of power stations, uh, nuclear power stations, uh, and to give Sweden the highest per capita uh, nuclear power of any anywhere anywhere in the world. And the thing is, nuclear power wasn't very popular in Sweden. So the, so that what they did was they said it was like a project fear. They said, okay, if we don't have nuclear, we'll have to have coal. And, and Sweden is a country 
So almost unique in Western Europe with virtually no coal. So they said, well, if you have coal, the first thing is you'll have acid rain and it will destroy our forests and our, our lakes will fill, fill up with sulfuric and nitric acid kind of thing. And then they started that in the late 60s. And then in the early 70s, they switched to global warming. You will also have climate change and it may melt the Arctic ice cap and vast, ter terrible things will happen. And it was actually the Swedes, it was very much Swedish diplomacy and Swedish scientists who were the midwives who really created, were behind the creation of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 1988. So it is, you're absolutely right. This was politicized and then weaponized for political reasons right from the very start. And to take a step back before the Swedes in, in the 70s, as you mentioned, you also write about, and it's kind of frightening, this description of the history of the environmental movement having some of its roots in totalitarian Nazi Germany, um, some of it's rooted in the pagan sun worship and symbol symbolism, and we know the Nazis, uh, they had their eugenics uh, system, and we see some of that in today's movements with the calls to r regulate uh, uh, population control and, and reproduction. So mm. can you tell us a little bit about the history rooted in Nazi Germany? Yeah, I think there are two things. One is something that's almost specifically in German culture and German philosophy, German thought, which is that although Germany was in a way, the biggest single winner from industrialization or the second wave of industrialization uh, from the late 19, in the late 19th century and the 20th century. And Bismarck united, the power of Germany was based on, on coal and steel and a mechanized uh, armed forces, a mechanized army. And yet at the same time, there is within German culture a, a revulsion against uh, industrialization, a, a back to nature movement that actually we belong in the unsullied forests and, and so forth. And it's it's basically an irre irreconcilable, almost bipolar problem that Germany is incapable of, of resolving. So there's this sort of that there's this sort of metaf metaphysical problem that Germ Germany has about industrialization. And there's also something specifically not about the Nazis and, and in and Hitler's ideology, which is very different from sort of traditional Marxism and communism, in that they believed that nature and the laws of nature overpowered and were more important than, if you like, human laws. If you think about Marx and the laws of history, those are human laws, whereas uh, the, the Nazis believed in the, the law of biology. So if that, that's how the, 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 the categories of history, if you like, are, are racial ones and they're Darwinian and so forth. So they imported the categories of biology and the natural sciences into politics. And again, you see this very strongly in, in the environmental movement today where they say we're subject to limits. And as you rightly point about, uh, about the, there's this fixation with population control and the brutality of, uh, of population controls completely seems to escape them. But it's this idea that we are creatures, we are subject to biological laws. That first came, that, that philosophy you first get in politics with the National Socialist, National Socialist and, and with Adolf Hitler. And if we could just explore this uh, a little bit more, because, you know, so, uh, radical environmentalists today might say, oh, you know, that was 70 years ago, um, this Nazi environmental movement and ideology. But 
Uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I've noticed a lot of similarities in, in today's movement, and I've made notes of some of these proposals, which I would consider totalitarian by the climate change movement today. I just may, I want to make a brief list of them. You know, one example I remember was a UN report for Mexico suggesting forced relocation of populations. I have a home in Mexico, and I suppose this means that they could forcibly evacuate me from my home if they wanted to. You know, other suggestions they've made, give up meat, eat hamburgers made from human excrement that were developed, I believe, in laboratories in, in Japan. They say camels and cows uh, cost too much CO2, so they should be greatly reduced in number. Contr they want to have the power to turn off our uh, home energy if we've used too much. And then there was that infamous 1010 film where they violently blew up the heads of people who disagreed with them. Uh, can we draw a line from that Nazi ideology to today? Yeah, we, we, we can, and I'll come back to that in just a moment. But, you, but what, what, is, what is really quite disturbing about, I found, researching and writing uh, the chapter on, on, on the Nazis, which I call Europe's, it's chapter four in the book, Europe's First Greens, is that virtually every single theme of the modern, modern environmental movement you, you find there in the Nazi period. So they wanted. Hitler said, if he wanted, if he won the Second World War, he'd ban meat eating. They were they they for, for the same reason as 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 put out by modern environmentalists that they consume too much that that livestock consume too much grain. Goering at one stage called German farmers who fed grain to to um, livestock. They, he called them traitors. Uh, they complained about modern advertising techniques, which led people to overconsume food and eat the wrong kind of food. They believed uh, that industrialization caused cancer. And what's very interesting about that is that that, that that tenet of Nazi medicine found its way into the notorious cancer chapter of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. I think it's called One in Four, the idea that one in four people was going to die from from cancer, as Rachel Carson said, you know, industrialization means that we live in a sea of carcinogens. And she got that from Nazi medicine. And the link there is with a German-American doctor who, uh, who a physician, I think he was in Pittsburgh, who, when the Nazis came to power, went back to Germany, picked all this stuff up, came back. And if you look at the citations for that chapter in, in Silent Spring, it's littered with references to him. Of course, that, that Nazi medicine, with one exception, turned out to be completely wrong. And one exception is with, with uh, cigarette smoking. But that you won't find the tobacco leaf mentioned in, 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 in Silent Spring. And I think probably the, the thing that really hit home when I was uh, researching the book was something that Adolf Hitler told an aide. He said, I'm not interested in politics. I'm interested in changing people's lifestyles. And that is exactly what we have today with the environmental movement. So I think that whole period stands as a very sinister warning about what happens when people want to take control of, of people's lives for environmental ends and control them and sacrifice what to me is the most impo important political value, which is human freedom. And let's look at the, some of the economics um, of their proposals. A large part of your book uh, goes through in, in 
technical detail uh, of the economics of, of the, um, you know, deindustrializing our, our way of life and changing our lifestyle. You know, personally, I, I enjoy solar technology. I have a solar laptop bag. Um, I would love to have my house one day run on solar technology, but you make the point that solar and wind on a mass scale is completely unfeasible and cannot replace carbon uh, energy sources. You know, I'm living here in minus 20, minus 30 degrees Central Asia at the moment. I surely cannot fathom 100% renewable uh, energy in this part of the world, especially with the abundance of coal, gas, and oil. Could you comment on the, on the economics and would it be possible 100% renewable energy in the future? The, 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 prob the, basic, the fundamental problem is that wind and solar are intermittent. They are weather dependent. They, they don't respond to demand. They respond to, to the weather. And this, again, was something that you find you, you, a problem that they had in the Nazi period. It will come as no surprise, given what we've just talked about, that the Nazi party was the first political party anywhere in the world to have a wind power program. And their answer, the, the Nazi engineers, their answer to this problem of intermittency was, oh, well, we need to store the wind energy by converting it into hydrogen and transform, transfer ourselves, transform ourselves into a hydrogen-based society rather than a coal-based a coal -based society. And you get that today where people, I saw an article recently, but Stephen Chu, who's, uh, president, who was President Obama's first energy secretary, he said batteries aren't good enough for grid-scale grid intermittent uh, to, to score, store grid-scale intermittent wind and solar. We have to convert it into hydrogen. And we're hardly any closer to solving that problem, that big, huge engineering chemical problem than the Nazis were sort of nine decades ago. So it's, it, it, this is a fundamental problem to do with the technology of intermittent, um, intermittent uh, electricity generation. And as yet, it, there is no solution. So what we've got is we've got we've got we put the cart before the horse. The horse is solving the storage problem. The cart is the wind and solar. But this was all this was driven. This whole thing is driven by ideology. And then, of course, you get massive uh, rent seekers just piling on the back of it. And so it's going to be a very, very difficult thing to to, to throw off. Yeah, and talking about the, the economy, and, and there's this um, immense amount of money at play. The climate alarmists point the finger at capitalist industry, but you know what they say. For every finger you point at someone, three fingers are pointing back, back at you. And indeed, there's this, you write about it in Green Tyranny, this revolving door of NGOs, lobbyists, green technology companies, and government agencies swimming in, in cash. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's what I call the climate climate industrial complex, and it's it's composed of, as you say, the NGOs, it's government bureaucrats and regulators, <clears throat> it's it's university uh, professor, academics um, and think tanks, and a lot of and, and the funding, a lot of the funding this for this not only comes from governments but also very lot the very the multi-billion foundations the old ones in in the u.s such as rockefeller and ford and so forth but the new ones from the silicon valley oligarchs uh who've been funding a lot of a lot of this and it, it's not just in the u.s it flows across europe they've they, they finance uh some of the the european initiatives indeed the european commission in turn funds 
a lot of these activities and the European Commission and the um, and some uh, European governments are in turn funding some of the think tank works for the World Resources Institute in in Washington. So there's this whole nexus of cash, of expertise, and then of course there's this the 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 billion pounds, billions and billions of dollars that then go into wind and solar. So there's a big industry and and behind this. It's not just the people who, the Siemens and uh, so forth, who actually make the kit. It's the people who finance it. That's really where the money is. That's where you take the big turn, is the people financing and investing in this. And so you've got a massive, great vested interest that's been created. And interestingly, the German Greens, Joschka Fischer wrote in a book, we had to create a green class of entrepreneurs, people who have an economic uh, benefit from all this, because Fischer was a, was a Marxist. He was a 1968 a radical. So he understood you know, it, class interests. So they went out to create a, cla- a new class with a huge interest in this. And in Green Tyranny, you detail how the new left became radicalized out of Europe's uh, Frankfurt School. There was this long march through the institutions they marched right into uh, American academia. And, you know, I was quite taken aback when, when I personally witnessed uh, in my in the Mexican in the university where I taught, I gauged my students, uh, um, my classes, and there were international students there as well. The l- large majority were disproportionately left-wing, uh, as well as left-wing radical environmentalists. And you know, it's it's nice to have a diversity of opinion, to have people from the center, from the right, from the left. But I find it uncomfortable when, you know, 95% of the class is left-wing radical environmentalist. Can you talk about what's happened in academia? Yeah, I think I think that the Frankfurt School has been the worst single import that into America there's ever been. They have done a huge amount of damage to American university life. And these these were people, they, they were uh, Marxist intellectuals um, based in Frankfurt. Uh, they they saw their fear of Hitler was not because they, most of them were, Jew, were Jews, but they didn't, it wasn't the anti-Semitism of Hitler they feared, it was that they were they were Marxists or, or really post-Marxists. And they, 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 they developed the synthesis of Marxism and Freudianism. Sorry about the dog. Um, they, in, in a way to explain what they needed to do was to explain why the proletariat wasn't in the vanguard of the revolution. Actually, the, the proletariat was uh, was actually satisfied with capitalism and, and, and the living standards that capitalism was, was giving them. So they had to say that, well, the proletariat had been conned by the merchants of kitsch into being subdued. So they developed this whole alternative this cultural explanation, this uh, Freudian explanation for why capitalism was bad and why it wasn't being overthrown. And these people, they, they came to, Frankfurt School came to, uh, to they first went to, to, New York, uh, to Geneva and then New York, and then they, they, their, their influence has spread throughout American universities. And there was one thing, I mean, what you get is this sort of twisting of, reality of meaning of language, which I think is ultimately so destructive of academic discourse. So uh, Herbert Marcuse wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance, where tolerance 
which is clearly the antithesis of repression, becomes repressive because it's used by, by, by capitalism. And you read through the essay and it just tortures those words. It twists them and changes them so, that it's, so it actually turns them around. And it's this ability to vacate meaning from words. So everything becomes, everything becomes twisted, negative and nihilistic. And that's ultimately where, again, writing this book, you've got, I, 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 there's, this link, there's this link with the irrationalism and nihilism of national socialism and, and if you like the irrational uh, irrational right uh, if you'd care to call it that but and it's it's where they, they join up and I was very much influenced uh, in, in researching the book and I put it in the book uh, by a very famous essay by Paul Berman called The Passion of Joschka Fischer and there he, he writes about the new left of the 1968ers and the Frankfurt School and he talks about how this movement of Radical students in Germany became, they started off as being against uh, national socialism and against the former Nazis who were still in West, West Germany. And they turned out Nazi-like, that they actually adopted the positions the Nazis had. And where I extended that analysis into, into environmentalism, that they actually then adopted, that they adopted the environmental tenets that actually had, had previously lay, had lain dormant in post-war Germany, but we saw very strongly in the Nazi period. And could you, in chapter 23, you write about the spiral of silence, which is another tactic I, I think they use, especially in the media today, to silence opponents and build consensus. Can you just briefly explain what is this spiral of silence? The Spiral of Silence was, um, is a book written by possibly the, the person who is the most important opinion pollster of the post-war era. Uh, Elizabeth Noella Neumann, and she was uh, she was a very very interesting woman. As I say, she was West Germany's leading uh, pollster. Uh, she worked for the CDU, the, the right of centre party. But uh, before the war, she won a scholarship uh, to study polling, and from uh, she got the she was awarded the scholarship by. Goebbels's Ministry of uh, Popular Enlightenment and Propaganda, and she she studied so she studied po polling techniques in America, and then she went back and she actually worked for for Goebbels for a short time. She she was she was she was fired after a bit. But what was very interesting was uh, she then in the post-war era she noticed that people didn't say things when they were answering questions to pollsters. They didn't actually say res respond in a way that people really believe what they weren't telling the truth about what they really thought. And she, she noticed that what happened when a view becomes overwhelming, that, that it becomes a sort of socially accepted view, that people actually retreat, that they stopped, they stopped saying, this is what I think. And, and they, they withdraw into themselves. And it's a very powerful, it's, it's a very powerful mechanism because you can, and it operates through the media. So if people don't see their views reported or commented on, they kind of, they, those views eventually die. You know, they stop being expressed. People don't even have the language to express them. So it's an incredibly powerful tool in a way. And we see that tool being used in the, in the climate debate where people are called deniers, they're called, they're delegitimized, they're not allowed to have, 
you can't have debate, the science is settled, and so forth. So, so you see this very, very powerfully, and it's it's the biggest weapon in their toolkit, in my in my view. And early early on in the book, you discuss you cite some of the environmentalists and in, in their ideology to their desire to create some type of single global uh, authority or world government. Um, to me, this sounds a bit too much. Uh, I mean, I, I think the idea of having a world government in itself isn't good or bad, but the question is what kind would it be? And I think history shows us that every single form of government we, we've ever had, whether it was tribal, city-state, nation-state, or empire, you know, eventually... Uh, dissolve into corruption absolute power corrupts absolutely and having a world state i think would eventually also dissolve into corruption or tyranny or whatnot and i often ask myself am i crazy for not desiring a world state or or is that a crazy idea can you tell us about this well i think i mean a world state would mean the end of in my view, it, it would represent the end of freedom because no, no no world government could be accountable to voters in any meaningful way. And ultimately, ultimately, one's recourse to a government uh, and a country that one doesn't like is to to leave and go somewhere else. And with a world government, obviously, that 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 is closed. But of course, if you're if if the objective is to save the planet from from a, a from a planetary catastrophe kind of everything is justified and again in i think it's the last or penultimate chapter i i cite the french philosopher uh, pascal bruckner who talks about the future again as it was in 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 under communism and christianity the future being the great category of of blackmail so we are being blackmailed in order to save save the planet we have to we have to sacrifice various things and of course the biggest sacrifice we're being asked to make is 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 our freedom uh, is, and that's why I said at the if reading the book, as you go back right to the beginning, this is a book about freedom. Fundamentally, this is an issue about whether freedom, whether we continue to be free. I suppose when Elon Musk gets his spaceships going to Mars, uh, you know, that'd be one, one way to escape a world state. But um, I'm just joking. But you seem to downplay the threat of a nuclear winter. Um, I'm currently living about 200 kilometers from the principal Soviet nuclear test site, the, the Polygon, which had over 500 bombs dropped on it. Life here has uh, moved on and seems fine. I personally do kind of fear a nuclear winter if enough nuclear warheads were used, I suppose. But could you tell us about y your view on the nuclear winter scare? Yeah, the nuclear winter scare was um, happened in the early 1980s, and it was a product of the climactic decade of the Cold War. And the background to this was that um, in the 1970s, the Soviet Union started to put to deploy medium-range SS-20 nuclear missiles. And the the thing about those missiles was they could hit Western Europe, but they couldn't hit. Uh, the United States. So they were a tool for 
detaching Western Europe from the United from the U.S. nuclear umbrella, and therefore, in a sense, neutralising the American nuclear umbrella as far as Western Europe was concerned, and effectively neutralising the Atlantic Alliance. And in fact, it was the West German leader, Helmut Schmidt, who said, we have to counter this. And so the Atlantic Council agreed a twin track um, way forward, which was to counter the SS-20s with cruise and Pershing missiles, and at the same time enter negotiations with the Soviet Union so that deployment of those and the SS-20s would be, would, wouldn't be uh, wouldn't need to take place. And the Soviet Union hit back very, very hard. It waged an intense propaganda campaign uh, to frustrate deployment of cruise and Pershing missiles. And those, the, the, those, the Pershings were the the key uh, arena for that was West Germany. That's where they were going to go because West Germany was in the, was on the front line of the Cold War. And the Soviet Union put an enormous amount of effort into the propaganda to supporting the peace movements, particularly in in West Germany. And one of the one of the things that uh, popped up on, on on this was the was the nuclear winter. And it, it emerged after a, a Russian uh, defector. He revealed that actually uh, the nuclear winter hypothesis had been used, had been developed by Andropov and the KGB. It was planted in Stockholm in Sweden. It was put, there was a paper written in Ambio, uh, an environmental uh, journal in, in, of Sweden. And it then got picked up and had massive play in the United States. And you had a whole raft of, of scientists led by the cosmologist Carl Sagan, who got him by, behind this and said, if we're, if there's a nuclear exchange, there'll be nuclear winter. And, and it's likely that uh, Homo sapiens in uh, across the northern hemisphere and possibly even the southern hemisphere will, will become extinct and it's the end of everything kind of thing. Well, this only served the interests of this this thing only served the interests of the Soviet Union. It was designed to undercut the Reagan administration's uh, uh, arms build up, which uh, fortunately went ahead and actually resulted in Gorbachev deciding this was a game uh, that they weren't going to win. And that, and that led to the de-escalation of the Cold War and indeed the end of the Cold War. So the point, the, the, the big takeaway from that chapter is that the scientists involved in that were objectively playing to the strategic interests of the USSR and against those of the United States. And the irony is that these people who got the Cold War so wrong um, that in a few short years later were the lead ones on the global warming. Uh, virtually every there are only two climate scientists I found who 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 were on the if, who were on the if you like the U.S. side on and actually did that a scientist turned out to be right on nuclear winter who were then involved in global warming. But the scientific community as a whole lined up. Behind all these, the scare on the, of nuclear winter, and therefore were effectively acting as uh, sock puppets for the for the Kremlin. And I like the term that you use. Uh, beside climate industrial complex, you say climate deep state. You've also mentioned the the Swedish deep state. You say the U.S. Democratic Party has become the political arm of the climate deep state, and that the working class basically elected. Donald Trump because of a dying economy, um, deindustrialized economy, and the ridiculous uh, identity 
politics. Do you see a turning of the tide or will radical environmentalism succeed in establishing some type of dystopian Fourth Reich, like uh, Philip Dick's uh, Man in the High Castle or something? Well, I think where you can see that dystopia is in California, where, uh, and I've got a, a chapter on California there, where it is it, it's very difficult to see where an alignment of political forces is strong enough to overcome what's already there, where you have the Silicon Valley oligarchs, you have the media establishment of Hollywood and, and Los Angeles, um, and and you have some you have very very wealthy uh, you have so you have a lot of coastal wealth, and in the interior of California, you actually have quite a lot of poverty. It's almost kind of the, the segregation is almost like South Africa, the, the segregation of, of wealth and opportunity in that state. And it's very difficult to see that political force is strong enough to overturn that. But I think across the US, the, there is a, a genuine crisis for the parties, for the party of the left, the Democrats, because they came into being really to advocate and represent the interests of working people and it was about better living standards it was like you know they they were about aligned with uh, trade unions for better wages better conditions better better lives and they have what's happened with the democrats they it's they they've lost their their linkage with with their with their blue collar base with if you like their middle class uh, working family base, and they've basically sold out to the environmental oligarchs. You've also got a kind of, you've got. There's also a middle class in America that is quite, uh, you know, is is white collar and is into environmental issues and so forth. And so that the Democrat on the Democrat side, you've got a whole raft of, or what was on the Democrats, a, a whole raft of a demographic of a class that is really up for grabs. And of course, a lot of those shifted to Donald Trump in 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 2016. But I think it's it's very hard for the Democrats to recover from that because basically they rely, they've been captured by the climate industrial complex, uh, which has turned the Democratic Party into the political arm, the political wing of the climate industrial complex. And is there any final point I may have uh, missed uh, that you'd like to mention? Any final thoughts or, or comments, bottom line or conclusion we should take away regarding radical environmentalism or climate change? I think the most important thing is to understand what it is. And once you've understand, understood its underlying motivations, where it comes from, its genealogies, you're on to that is the first step in in defeating that the second point i think is that eventually all this comes up against a reality and we're beginning to see that reality um the two places i point to uh, would be germany where where the reality of the energy vendor is it just doesn't work I mean, it's like communism collapsed because ultimately it didn't work. And similarly in South, in Australia, you have some incredibly radical, green radical, actually, again, a Labour Party in South Australia, where you've had blackouts, you've got the world's most expensive electricity prices. And there comes a point where the ideology is defeated by reality. 
And that that is the moment that uh, one needs to be aware of and and point out point out for what it is that this is reality is is something that you can't fight you the the ideology has to surrender to the reality okay and i i totally agree and how can people best follow and support your work they can get uh, your previous book uh, age of global warming i believe uh, on amazon and in bookstores as well as green tyranny uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention yeah i i, I put i've um I write quite a lot and I put all my stuff stuff up on Twitter and there'll be a website coming up shortly where I've got a lot of writing. I've got an article uh, which uh, you might care to link to on, on, on Quadrant, the Australian uh, website looking at the, 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 the renewable lessons that are coming out of, of Germany and Australia. Yes, indeed. I, I will do that. Send me the link. Uh, and thank you again, Mr. Darwal, for your um, the research. It was... Uh, dense uh, book packed with a lot of uh, information but a great book uh, and thanks for shedding light on on this green tyranny it's great been great talking to you now sorry for having the the dog dog messing having the dog on the tape as well oh. hope your uh, hope your listeners can put up with that <laughs>